One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Bucks at Panthers. Kickoff Sunday, January 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 37 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. The Buccaneers can legit go from hosting a playoff game to out of the postseason altogether, depending on the outcome of this weekend's games. They currently sit atop the NFC South, meaning a win would lock up the division and a home playoff game. A loss all but eliminates them because they split the season series with both the Falcons and the Saints and would hold the worst divisional record behind whoever wins between Atlanta and New Orleans, unless there's the unlikely scenario of a tie between Atlanta and New Orleans. The Panthers have long been eliminated from playoff contention. Those two situations likely mean neither team will be interested in resting players here, instead playing a legitimate game in Week 18. The Buccaneers are getting healthy at the right time, particularly in their secondary, with no player listed as DNP on Thursday. The Panthers also appear to be nearing full health, particularly in their secondary, with the biggest names still out of practice being kicker Eddie Pinheiro. How Tampa Bay Will Try to Win We talked last week about how the Buccaneers have altered their offensive approach over the previous six weeks, with Week 17 marking the sixth consecutive contest with a PROE value at or below league average. That translated to only 15 team rush attempts versus 33 pass attempts a week ago, which is more of an indictment against their ability to move the football against the Saints than anything else. Basically, this team has transitioned to a unit heavily focused on a run-balanced offensive approach, irrespective of the matchup. Their slow pace and ability to generate splash plays through running back Rashad White and wide receivers Mike Evans and Chris Godwin has led to a decrease in offensive snaps per game during this most recent stretch of games, running more than a modest 62 offensive plays just twice in the previous six weeks, 68 against the Falcons in Week 14, and 74 against the Jags in Week 16, where they generated four takeaways. Finally, the normally concentrated nature of the offense amongst White, Evans, and Godwin took a bit of a step backward last week, but I can chalk that up to their struggles cracking the man-heavy Saints defense, and this matchup with the Panthers is about as different as can be. The Saints are in man at the second highest rate in the league, while the Panthers play the third highest rate of zone. One thing that remained unchanged last week was the borderline elite snap rate and backfield share for Rashad White, who handled 73% of the offensive snaps and 15 of 18 available running back opportunities, or 83.3%. The Panthers have been more vulnerable to volume and poor red zone defense than atrocious against the run this season, yielding a moderate 4.1 yards per carry, ranked 20th, behind an above-average 1.18 yards allowed before contact. Allowing 25 total touchdowns to opposing backfields through 16 games will understandably inflate the DK points against numbers, which currently sits at 28th in the league at 26.9. That said, the ground game is most definitely the path of least resistance for the Buccaneers in Week 18, and White should be the largest part of that success, or failure to be honest. The Panthers have done a phenomenal job at limiting production through the air this season, which is made even more remarkable considering their ineptitude in rushing the passer. They have a league-low 16.9% pressure rate this season. Their defensive design under defensive coordinator Ejiro Evero should not be underestimated, as they've held opponents to just 5.9 net yards per pass attempt and have given up only 19 passing touchdowns this year, both of which rank in the top 10 in the league. That said, they have faced the fewest pass attempts against at just 449, or 28.1 per game. That's what a two-win season will do to you. 
Even so, their back end has played at a borderline elite level with a combination of talent, veteran savvy, and scheme. The Buccaneers' primary weapons see a closer distribution of volume against zone this season, but overall volume is still highly concentrated on the previously mentioned three players. Mike Evans remains the big play threat and red zone threat. At the same time, White brings one of the top pure volume expectations at running back, contributing routinely through the air in a bit more than the minimum required to offset the need for multiple touchdowns, but bit less than is required to provide consistent paths to elite scoring kind of way. Godwin brings consistent, albeit lower pre-touch upside than someone like Mike Evans, but is still a primary contributor. The matchup and setup here don't scream upside, but any one of these three players can make a difference on a slate like this. How Carolina will try to win. At some point, we have to feel bad for Frank Reich. The dude was handed a shit sandwich and told it was a shrimp hoagie, with most of the ineptitude of this organization trickling down from owner David Tepper. If the league, and nation for that matter, needed any more proof of that fact beyond the fumbling of this year's draft, I think he provided it in spades when he dumped a drink on a Jaguars fan last week. Just absolute absurdity for an owner to be doing that. This isn't Tommy calling you names on the playground. This is the owner of an NFL franchise reacting to opposing fans needling him. Anyway, this franchise is going nowhere fast while under the control of the frontrunner for biggest idiot owner following the sale of the Commanders. From a football perspective, the Panthers rank 28th in PROE, 31st in points per game, and 30th in points allowed per game. Obviously, that is not a recipe for success in today's league. The Panthers have run an offense via extreme rates of 11 personnel almost out of necessity this season, which we should expect as they limp to the finish line of the 2023 season. Chuba Hubbard has seized control of the Carolina backfield since Miles Sanders missed Week 6 with an injury, playing 60% or more of the offensive snaps in each of the last six games and nine of the previous 11. He has five straight games of 16 or more running back opportunities, with three of those games at 24 or more. That volume is highly susceptible to game script, meaning he is unlikely to see more than 15 to 17 opportunities, unless the Panthers can keep the game close, which is a tall ask considering the current state of this team. Even so, he has gone over 20 DK points just twice all season and has a thin road to GPP viability. The pure rushing matchup on the ground is not a good one against a Buccaneers defense holding opposing backs to 3.8 yards per carry, which ranks 5th, behind just 1.08 yards allowed before contact, ranked 6th. Miles Sanders is nothing more than a loose change of pace back at this point. It's week 18 and I'm not going to hold back. Rookie quarterback Bryce Young has to be considered one of the biggest busts in recent history, tossing just 10 touchdowns versus 11 interceptions while missing just one game this season. He has nine games of single-digit fantasy point output, lol, in 15 games started and has thrown for multiple touchdowns just twice all season. It was at this point that I inserted a joke about his height, but I thought better of it. But I still wanted you to know that I was thinking about it. The dude has thrown for under 200 yards in 10. 10 freaking starts this season. Adam Thielen, Jonathan Mingo, another colossal draft day fumble, and DJ Chark operate in near every down rolls due to the high reliance on 11 personnel, but gone are the days where we could bank on volume for any of these players. It was fun while it lasted, Thielen. Tight end Tommy Tremble rounds out the pass-catching core in the absence of Hayden Hurst, but he has one game all season with more than a modest three targets and should not be considered even if there's a fire. Likeliest Game Flow It is likeliest we see the Buccaneers maintain control of the game throughout, although a second matchup between divisional opponents always presents a wider range of potential outcomes. 
Either way, the Panthers' inability to move the ball through the air spells trouble in this spot, considering the Buccaneers primarily function as a pass-funnel defense, which should be considered one of the primary contributing factors to the earlier assertion that the Bucs should control the environment here. And since Tampa Bay has biased their approach towards the ground in recent weeks, and because the Panthers are a bit more susceptible to giving up volume and production on the ground, the overall game environment is likely to be rather muted here. Browns at Bengals. Kickoff Sunday, January 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 37.5. Game Overview by High-Low. The Browns are locked into the five seed in the AFC, leaving them nothing to play for in Week 18. They've already announced that QB Joe Flacco will rest, while Jeff Driscoll will get the spot start. The Bengals were eliminated from playoff contention with their loss to the Chiefs in Week 17, which is honestly surprising that they made it that late into the season considering the injuries they have dealt with in 2023. Browns wide receiver Amari Cooper has barely practiced over the previous month plus while dealing with a heel injury. He has yet to practice this week. I would say it is highly unlikely he plays in Week 18, all things considered. Same thing goes for guard Joel Batonio and center Ethan Posick. Browns wide receiver Elijah Moore is coming off a concussion that an independent neurologist was quoted as saying should force retirement. He has managed limited sessions in both practices so far this week, meaning he is progressing through the protocol, but I would say it would be extremely irresponsible to play him this week. Bengals wide receiver Jamar Chase has a shoulder injury, but was upgraded from limited to a full participant on Thursday, making it likely he will end the season on the active game day roster. Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins has a hamstring injury and is unlikely to be on the same program after missing both practices to start the week. Bengals running back Joe Mixon was added to the injury report Thursday after he missed practice with an illness. He should be good to go come Sunday. How Cleveland Will Try to Win The Browns spent most of the year in the bottom five in PROE before Joseph Vincent Flacco's arrival. In the five games with Flacco, they had just one game with a neutral PROE, Week 17's win over the Jets. That said, there are some significant uncertainties regarding how we expect them to behave against the Bengals, considering they are already locked into the five seed out of the AFC and will be resting Flacco. Furthermore, I would expect both Amari Cooper and Elijah Moore to rest after Cooper spent the better part of the previous month out of practice while managing his heel injury, and Moore suffered what was deemed by some independent neurologists as a career-ending concussion in Week 17. Does the team play Kareem Hunt after he has been a mainstay on the injury report this season? Does the team risk playing Denzel Ward, Miles Garrett, or Juan Thornhill? Do we see David Njoku, Joel Batonio, Ethan Posick, or Wyatt Teller? If I'm sitting in Kevin Stefanski's shoes, I'm resting all of those guys and not risking anything heading into the postseason. All of that to say, we can't really be sure who the team plays or how they approach this game this week. I would place it as likelier that we see a reversion to the more run-heavy approach as the Browns try and just make it through this one without any primary pieces getting injured. Jerome Ford has led the team in snaps at running back in all but two games this season, averaging 12.6 carries and 3.8 targets per game. In the five games with Flacco this season, he sat right at 12 carries and four targets. This is just his preferred role in the absence of Nick Chubb, with almost half of his weekly production coming on the first couple of drives for the Browns. There has to be some legitimate reason for the front-loaded reliance on Ford. I just can't see it. He has been primarily augmented by Kareem Hunt for most of the season, with the two handling the bulk of the opportunities out of the backfield. That said, there is very little reason to give either of these two meaningful opportunities here. I think we'll likely see Pierre Strong handle the bulk of the work in what amounts to a solid matchup against a Bengals defense, allowing 4.7 yards per carry, 1.55 yards before contact, 
and 22.8 DK points per game to opposing backfields. While the Browns could be forced to keep Ford and Hunt active for personnel reasons, I think it's highly unlikely we see Amari Cooper, David Njoku, and Elijah Moore dressed on Sunday. Cooper and Moore are simply too banged up, and Njoku is simply too important to the current state of this offense to risk anything heading into the postseason. That would leave the team's primary pass-catching cadre in the hands of Marquise Goodwin, Cedric Tillman, and David Bell, and some combination of Harrison Bryant and Jordan Atkins at tight end. Bryant might be the most interesting piece here against a Bengals team that has schematically struggled with inline tight ends for most of the season, particularly playing with a backup quarterback. Even so, I don't expect much pass volume from the Browns here. How Cincinnati will try to win. The Bengals limp into Week 18 having been hit hard by the injury bug this season. It now appears likely that they will be without T. Higgins for their game against the Browns, likely vaulting Trenton Irwin back into a near-every-down role after the long-haired wide receiver served as the primary fill-in for Higgins earlier in the season. Irwin has played snap rates of 76, 81, 95, and 72% in the four games missed by Higgins this year. That said, I don't see Zach Taylor and the Bengals taking it easy with their game plan after fighting tooth and nail to remain in the playoff picture out of the AFC without Joe Burrow for half the season. In other words, I think it's likely we see a normal approach from the Bengals here that should involve heavy passing from the team that ranks second in the league in PROE for the season, which notably did not change drastically with the insertion of backup quarterback Jake Browning. I also expect Joe Mixon, Jamar Chase, and Tyler Boyd to play a normal allotment of snaps for the season finale. Joe Mixon has averaged 15.2 carries and 3.9 targets per game this season on the third highest opportunity share in the league. His 66 red zone opportunities rank third, and his 12 goal line carries finally started yielding touchdowns after a historically bad touchdown rate last year. That said, he still struggled with efficiency, averaging just 3.8 yards per carry and a putrid 4.4 yards per touch in 2023, leaving him with just one viable GPP score all year, similar to his 2022 season. Of all starters here, I think Mixon is at the most risk of seeding additional work to backups, primarily due to the presence of Chase Brown and the potential out in Mixon's contract in the 2023 offseason, the team can move on with just $2.75 million in dead cap money compared to $9.82 million in dead cap money in the 2023 season. The matchup on the ground is middling at best, against a Browns defense holding backs to 4.1 yards per carry behind the second lowest yards allowed before contact in the league, 1.0. While I expect Jamar Chase to be active, it wouldn't make much sense to run him out on a full allotment of snaps while still dealing with an AC joint sprain. Furthermore, I expect T. Higgins to be held out with his hamstring injury. That should leave Trenton Irwin as the player to play the most snaps at wide receiver for the Bengals in what should still be a pass-heavy offensive game plan, with Tyler Boyd likely playing his final game as a member of the Bengals as he heads into offseason free agency. As such, expect Andre Iosevis and Charlie Jones to see additional reps, but likely not enough to fully matter in GPPs. Tanner Hudson could see additional run at tight end. He holds a solid 23.5% TPRR, which is 6th in the league amongst tight ends. The Bengals clearly shit the bet at tight end this offseason after bringing in Irv Smith to be their primary pass-catching tight end, so there is a possibility we see an increased reliance on Hudson in a meaningless game. The matchup is likely better than it appears on paper, with the Browns likely to rest key starters on defense, but I still expect them to play increased rates of man coverage. That makes Hudson a very interesting player to keep an eye on heading into the weekend as one of the primary mismatch pieces on this offense behind Jamar Chase. Likeliest Game Flow This one is interesting. It involves two teams with nothing to play for in Week 18, but for two very different reasons. 
That said, I expect each team to have a different mindset this week, with the Browns likely just trying to make it through Sunday with no further injuries, while resting a lot of key players, and the Bengals riding their emotional high after battling for the second half of the season through numerous key injuries. This feels very much like a, hey FC, we'll be back, type of game for the Bengals. As such, it is likeliest we see the Bengals go all out, while the Browns simply try and run their way to a shortened game and I don't see game flow or environment as overly likely to influence that trajectory here. Expect 32-35 to 35 pass attempts from Jake Browning, almost regardless of game environment, with the Browns likeliest to see 30-32 to 32 rush attempts and 28-30 to 30 pass attempts from Jeff Driscoll. There could be some fantasy relevance that emerges from that setup, which we will discuss in the DFS interpretation section. Vikings at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, January 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 45 and a half. Due to time constraints, the Edge audio for Vikings at Lions is not available this week. Please visit OneWeekSeason.com for the full game breakdown. Jets at Patriots. Kickoff Sunday, January 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 30 and a half. Game Overview by Pappy. This is one of the worst game environments we have seen all season, with a pitiful total of 30 and a half. This is a matchup between the two lowest-scoring teams in the AFC. Both teams have been eliminated from the playoffs for several weeks. Robert Sala has more job security than Bill Belichick. There is a chance this will be Belichick's last game in New England. Garrett Wilson is underpriced for his target volume, but hasn't turned his opportunities into fantasy points. Ezekiel Elliott has been used as a workhorse running back for the past four games. Brees Hall has seen 25 targets in the past two weeks, but it wouldn't make strategic sense for Salah to risk Hall's health in this game. How New York will try to win. The 6-10 Jets limp into Week 18, having been eliminated from playoff contention for several weeks. Robert Salah is reportedly going to keep his job after owner Woody Johnson announced before the Jets' Week 16 game that Salah was safe. While that could always change... Johnson appears willing to chalk this year up to bad luck after Aaron Rodgers blew out his Achilles in Week 1. Zach Wilson has missed the last two games with a concussion, and even though Salah said it's too early in the week to tell if Wilson will be available, it wouldn't make much sense to bring him back from a head injury for a meaningless game. Update, Zach Wilson has been ruled out. It's more likely that Trevor Simeon will get the nod to finish the season, but no matter who starts at QB, this is going to be a get-it-over-with type of game for the Jets. Salah doesn't have to worry about putting on a show to keep his job, and there is a good chance that if given the option to not play this game, he would be happy to end the season a week early. The Patriots have been brutal to run on. They are second in DVOA, and average against the pass, only 17th in DVOA. The Jets are ninth in pass rate over expectation, and second in pass rate, 68%, behind only the pass-happy commanders. The Jets have been a pass-leaning team that is willing to abandon the run if chasing points, which has led to 45 and 49 pass attempts in Simeon's two starts. It makes sense for teams to attack the Patriots through the air, and that's how the Jets want to attack, which makes it easy to predict another 40 pass attempts for Simeon. The Jets have been playing quick, ninth overall in pace, and all that passing game volume has put a strain on their sorry offensive line, which is ranked 31st per pro football focus. The Pats haven't been good at getting to the quarterback. They are 28th in sack rate, but they still hold an advantage against the Jets' barely-there offensive line. The one caveat is that because Sala would rather this game be quick and painless, he might decide to run more than usual. But it feels more likely that the Jets stick with their pass-leaning tendencies to finish the season. Expect a high-volume, low-efficiency passing attack while hoping to win the game on defense.
how New England will try to win. The 4-12 Patriots are amid one of the biggest declines in sports history. Their season has been over for a long time, and their roster, especially on offense, is devoid of talent. It feels strange to say that between Bill Belichick and Sala, Belichick is more likely to be fired at the end of the year. Belichick doesn't seem like he wants to leave New England or that he is ready to retire, which means the Patriots would have to do the unthinkable and release the man who presided over one of the greatest runs in sports history. Even if Belichick's success was because of Tom Brady and playing in the NFL's weakest division for two decades, Bill was still the man in charge during a span where the Patriots played in a remarkable 13 AFC Championship games, including a sure-to-never-be-matched eight straight appearances from 2011 to 2018. It feels crazy that a man who orchestrated so much success seems likely to lose his job after only a few poor seasons, but it can't be denied that Belichick's below 500 record without Tom Brady makes him look expendable. The Jets have been middling against the run, ranking 14th in DVOA, and a nightmare to throw against. They are third in DVOA. The Patriots never really found an offensive coordinator after the departure of Josh McDaniels. Last year, they used a hideous combination of defensive coaches, and this year they brought in a familiar doofus in Bill O'Brien. The Patriots have been playing quick. They are 10th in pace, and they don't want to throw, so they're 24th in PROE, but they end up throwing, ranking 14th in pass rate, because they are always chasing points. The Pats have one of their worst offensive lines, ranked 23rd per PFF, during Belichick's tenure, and are starting rookies at both guard spots. Trent Brown is still a wall at left tackle, but he was a healthy scratch last week, and despite not being on the injury report for Week 18, he wasn't spotted at practice on Wednesday. There is something going on that hasn't been made public, and it seems like Brown is going to miss this game. The Pats O-line is likely to struggle in protection against the Jets' above-average pass rush that is ranked 9th in sack rate. The Pats could have a hard time keeping Bailey Zappi upright, and no one wants to challenge DJ Reed or Sauce Gardner. Expect a run-heavy game plan from the Pats with the hope that they can limit their mistakes on offense and win on defense. Likeliest Game Flow This game has, checks twice, a hysterically low 30.5 total. This is a battle between two teams who have been incredibly inept on offense. The Jets scored the second lowest points, 251, in the AFC, ahead of only, you guessed it, the Patriots at 233. The first time these two teams met way back in Week 3, they produced a riveting 15-10 Patriots victory. This game doesn't mean much to either coaching staff, and the players would probably all rather end their season healthy than with a meaningless win. The most likely game flow has each team playing with a take-it-to-the-locker-room mentality, with both teams running when they can in order to chew up the clock and hoping to win off the other side's mistake late in the game. I don't feel strongly enough to take an over-under, but if forced to choose, give me the under. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Falcons at Saints. Kickoff Sunday, January 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 42. Game Overview by High Low. Both teams back their way into the playoffs, and a home playoff game for that matter, with a win and a Buccaneers loss. There should be everything left to play for here. Falcons quarterback Tyler Heineke has an ankle injury, but he got in two limited sessions to start the week after being forced from the team's Week 17 loss late with an ankle injury. The team has already indicated that Heineke will start if healthy. The rest of the primary pieces for the Falcons appear to be healthy. 
Saints running back Alvin Kamara departed the team's Week 17 win with an ankle injury and did not return. He has yet to practice this week and should currently be viewed as legitimately questionable. Saints wide receiver Chris Olave practiced in a limited capacity both days this week with an ankle injury and should be good to go on Sunday. Saints tight end Juwan Johnson has a chest injury and is sore from carrying the fantasy world on his back in Week 17 and contributing to millions of dollars changing hands, but got in a limited session Thursday after a DNP Wednesday. He appears likely to play. How Atlanta will try to win The Arthur Smith-led Falcons head into Week 18 with a chance at a postseason berth. Let that sink in. I personally think it's a damn travesty for the fans of the Falcons, but here we are. The Falcons rank first in rush rate over expectation, third in rush attempts per game at 31.1, ninth in points allowed per game at 20.3, thanks a lot, Ryan Nielsen, and 26th in points per game, 19. Lol. They have exactly one skill position player that consistently plays more than 65% of the team's offensive snaps, wide receiver Drake London, while running back Bijan Robinson and tight end Kyle Pitts have bobbed around between 60 and 80% snap rates all season. The Falcons basically take the three primary parts of an NFL game, game plan, game management, oh shit phases, and turn them into a two-part plan, three quarters plus of game plan and less than a quarter of oh shit desperation. In other words, the Falcons are going to attempt to continue to run it down your throat until they absolutely can't anymore. The biggest problem for us gamers is their defense hasn't given them too many reasons this season to deviate from that exhausting game plan, which is why I threw a snarky remark at defensive coordinator Ryan Nielsen earlier. Even with 10 games of 72% or more of the offensive snaps, rookie running back B. John Robinson has only 6 games this season with 20 or more running back opportunities. That said, 4 of those games have come in the previous 7 contests dating back to Week 10. The three games in that span where he didn't hit 20 running back opportunities were the 19 he had in week 17 in a trouncing at the hands of the Bears, the 10 he inexplicably had in week 15 against the Panthers, seriously, WTF, and the 17 he had in week 14 in a loss to the Buccaneers. In other words, Robinson has seen 17 or more running back opportunities in six of the previous seven games played. Even so, he has eclipsed 20 DK points just once since week five after doing so in three of his first four professional games. Both Tyler Algier and Corderell Patterson play enough to be a nuisance to Bijan, but not enough to be viable for fantasy purposes, with Algier seeming to do something every other week to make us collectively shout, that should have been Bijan, at our tubes. The matchup against the Saints is no longer prohibitive, considering they have allowed 4.5 yards per carry and 1.32 yards before contact. That said, a plus red zone defense has held opposing backs to just 18.5 DK points per game this season, while allowing just eight total touchdowns to the position. Bijan scored two of those in the last meeting between these two teams. As was mentioned earlier, wide receiver Drake London is the only near-every-down pass catcher on this offense, while in a route at a solid 96.9% clip. Tight end Kyle Pitts ranks second in route participation rate at 87.7%, which somewhat laughably ranks eighth amongst tight ends this season, while fellow tight end Jonu Smith ranks third on the team at 69.6%. Cotterell Hodge, Mac Hollins, Van Jefferson, Scotty Miller, Michael Pruitt, and even Tucker Fisk all play situational roles in the current form of this offense and would need something wonky to happen to return any meaningful score. London's underlying metrics have slipped a bit over the second half of the season after a large share during the first eight weeks of the season, now sporting OK target shares at 23.1% and TPRR at 22.5%, but maintaining an elite 28.9% red zone target share. 
While Pitts actually ranks top 12 in most metrics, his putrid 10.9% red zone target share is laughably low for a player that ranks second in air yards, 60.9 per game, first in air yards share, 23.6%, and first in ADOT, 11.3, at this position. Pitts has just five total red zone targets this season. Woof. How New Orleans will try to win. The Saints have some pretty major news to follow that could influence how they game plan for this one, the status of Alvin Kamara. Offensive coordinator Pete Carmichael is not a lot of things, but he is at least capable and willing to call an offense built to maximize whatever mismatch he is able to create with the personnel on the field. Look no further than Jawan Johnson's league-winning and BBM-winning performance from Week 17 if you need further proof of that assertion. Johnson was being fed volume and schemed looks even before Kamara left, which was amplified after the veteran back departed with an ankle injury at the start of the second half. Considering the matchup, the Falcons are near league average in most defensive metrics through the air, but seed the league's fourth deepest ADOT, while ranking in the top 10 in most metrics against the run. The potential absence of Kamara, and what we saw in the first meeting between these two teams, I expect the Saints to be a bit more forward-leaning with their aerial aggression to start so as not to allow the Falcons to play in their comfort zone, close game or with a lead allowing them to continue shoving the football down their opponents' throats. Jamal Williams managed just one fully healthy game while Kamara was out the first three weeks of the season, handling 20 running back opportunities on a 75% snap share in the process. The major difference in this one is the potential return of rookie running back Kendra Miller, who got in back-to-back limited sessions as he attempts to return from a lengthy seven-game absence due to an ankle injury. Things are easy if Kamara is able to suit up. Expect him to play as many snaps as his ankle will allow in a must-win game, with Williams in the primary change of pace role. Should Kamara miss? things will come down to the level of health of Miller, with Taysom Hill the player likeliest to see additional rushing opportunities both from under center and from the backfield. Journeyman James Robinson would also likely get the standard elevation on Saturday if the team feels like Kamara is in doubt of missing, so keep an eye out for that. Either way, the matchup against the Falcons is not ideal on the ground. Atlanta has held opposing backfields to 4.0 yards per carry, just 7 combined touchdowns, and 18.6 DK points per game this year. Tight end Jawan Johnson played the most snaps of Saints pass catchers a week ago. While that drove me absolutely crazy watching the game, Carmichael clearly saw something in the matchup that he wanted to exploit before the offense went into a shell in the second half after being up 20-0 at the break. The Falcons' outside-in, zone-heavy defensive scheme typically forces teams to attack the intermediate middle of the field, while situational man coverages filter volume to the deep perimeter, away from and or behind their elite linebacking and safety units. You attack this unit via tight ends and intermediate deep threats on the perimeter or over the deep middle from two high looks. If I were Carmichael, I'd be attacking the intermediate middle of the field to start to force the Falcons' safety into more shallow looks before taking my shots on early downs deep. That's what I would do. It remains to be seen what he is seeing because this is one of the few offensive coordinators in the league that can leave me scratching my head on Monday. Very unorthodox. Either way, Chris Olave, Rashid Shahid, and Jawan Johnson should be the primary targets in Week 18, with Taysom Hill always on hand to throw a gut punch when we least expect it. Likeliest Game Flow Considering the state of each of these teams, their likeliest plan of attack, and the desperation factor at play in this spot, everything from divisional slugfest to offensive eruption is on the table for this game environment. We talk a lot about the ingredients for an eruption game environment here at OWS, but another quick refresher. Games typically need some sort of spark or igniting factor, and we need some path to increased aggression. This game most definitely carries players that could provide the spark. Chris Olave, Rashid Shahid, Bijan Robinson, hell, even Tyler Algier keeps making magic happen. 
and the desperation factor could lead either team to increased aggression. An offensive eruption is not the likeliest outcome. That is left to a close-fought divisional game, but it is well within the range of outcomes here. That is likeliest to manifest through a back-and-forth affair as each team is content dropping back into a shell when playing with a lead. Jaguars at Titans. Kickoff Sunday, January 7th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 41. Game Overview by Hilo. The Titans enter Week 18 with a 5-11 record and the role of spoiler with nothing else left to play for. This could legitimately be the final game with Derrick Henry in the Powder Blues as the veteran grinder enters the 2024 offseason as an unrestricted free agent. The Jaguars need a win to lock up the AFC South and a home playoff game while a loss bumps them from the postseason altogether. Even a Texans-Colts tie eliminates the Jaguars if they lose. QB Trevor Lawrence has a shoulder and finger injury, wide receiver Zay Jones has knee and hamstring injuries, and wide receiver Christian Kirk has a groin injury. All manage two limited sessions to begin the practice week for the Jaguars. Titans QB Will Levis has a foot injury but was upgraded from a DMP to a limited participant on Thursday and should be good to start against the Jags. How Jacksonville will try to win. The Jaguars rank fifth in the league in pass rate over expectation, but understandably had their highest rush rate over expectation in their Week 17 game, played without Trevor Lawrence. Lawrence was a limited participant in both practices so far this week after missing the first game of his professional career a week ago. I tentatively expect him to play against the Titans. The fact that the Titans are probably the last franchise a team fighting for their playoff lives that needs a win wants to see on the schedule likely means we see full effort from the jump from the Jaguars. The problem is that the Titans also present a pass-funnel matchup while the Jaguars are dealing with injuries to their quarterback and multiple wide receivers. I tentatively expect all of Lawrence, Jones, and Kirk to play in the game that essentially decides Jacksonville's season. The biggest matchup area likely to decide the Jaguars' season is in the red zone, as the Jags rank just 21st in red zone touchdown rate at 51.02%, while the Titans rank first in red zone touchdown rate allowed, 37.93%. Travis Etienne continues to dominate the opportunities in the Jacksonville backfield, entering Week 18 with a commanding 75.2% team opportunity share, while averaging 15.7 carries and 4.2 targets per game. His red zone touches have steadily increased as the season has progressed as well, now ranking 14th in red zone touches with 41, including 8 goal line touches. Even so, his modest efficiency, 3.8 yards per carry and 4.6 yards per touch, has made it so that he has returned just two GPP viable scores all season at his Week 18 salary, even with 12 total touchdowns and four games of multiple touchdowns this season. The matchup on the ground is far from ideal against a Titans team holding opposing backs to 3.8 yards per carry, 1.15 yards before contact, and 19.4 DK points per game. There is no shortage of uncertainty surrounding the Jacksonville pass game with all of Lawrence, Zay, and Kirk dealing with injuries. That said, all three players managed consecutive limited showings to begin the week and appear likely to play against the Titans. The Titans are near league average in man zone coverage rates while struggling to 9.2 yards per coverage and an almost 20% explosive play rate allowed while in man. Kirk, Calvin Ridley, and Evan Ingram understandably separate themselves from the pack against man coverage this season, with Kirk the most interesting piece considering his price, bare minimum $3,000, and per-touch upside with the ball in his hands. Kirk leads the team in target rate against man, 31%, and is tied with Jones in target rate against zone at a more modest 18.8%. How Tennessee will try to win. If there's one team in the league that is likely to take the role of spoiler to heart, it's probably this Titans team. 
As in, head coach Mike Vrabel has worked hard to establish a winning culture in Tennessee, making it likely we see full effort from this team against the banged-up Jaguars. That said, I don't think it's likely we see any meaningful deviation from a game plan that involves elevated rush rates and a slow pace of play, considering the robust sample size with Vrabel in command. This is simultaneously likely to mute the overall game environment and put a cap on the expected offensive efficiency from the Titans, considering the matchup against a Jaguars team best attacked through the air. Levis is clearly the starter for the Titans when healthy, but is coming off of a missed game due to an ankle injury, followed by a shortened game due to a foot injury suffered during the team's Week 17 loss to the Texans. Henry continues to see significant volume and snaps vultured by rookie Tajay Spears, particularly in negative game environments. That said, he also continues to see a much higher touch-to-snap ratio. Basically, when he is on the field, it's highly likely that he is going to see a touch. The Jaguars have held opponents to 4.0 yards per carry, but have given up 21.8 DK points per game to the position, while ranking poorly in yards allowed before contact at 1.44. In other words, this isn't as prohibitive of a matchup on the ground as it might appear to be at first glance. That should allow the Titans to continue feeding their king, and Prince, deep into the game. Furthering that likelihood is the Titans' defense that ranks first in the league in red zone touchdown rate allowed. The season-ending injuries to Nick Westbrook-Akine, Kyle Phillips, Josh Wiley, and Trevon Wesco have forced a higher degree of concentration amongst the Tennessee pass catchers, with DeAndre Hopkins, Chris Moore, Traylon Burks, and Chiga Conquo all handling more than 70% snap rates since the loss of the previously mentioned players. That has not yet manifested in innumerable usable fantasy weeks for the remaining pass catchers, as both games were played with changes under center. Ryan Tannehill started in Week 16 with Levis out with an ankle injury, while Levis started in Week 17, only to leave early with a foot injury. The top fantasy score to come from this unit over the previous two weeks was the 18.3 DK points put up by Aconquo in Week 16 against the Seahawks. Consecutive games of 26 pass attempts from Tennessee quarterbacks will do that, which is about the range of expected pass attempts in Week 18. Likeliest Game Flow As was mentioned in the Jacksonville intro, the biggest deciding factor in how this game is likeliest to play out is the matchup between a struggling Jaguars red zone offense against the top red zone defense in the league. That is likely to keep this game close throughout and allow the Titans the opportunity to play the role of spoiler as the game comes down to one of the final possessions. In other words, it is highly unlikely that Jaguars are able to run away with this one, considering the injuries to their offense and the matchup where it matters most. Keep an eye on the practice reports from each team on Friday for a better idea of where we can go for any GPP upside. Seahawks at Cardinals. Kickoff Sunday, January 7th, 425 p.m. Eastern, over under 47.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. The Seahawks need to win this game and get some help to make the playoffs. Arizona's defense has been gouged on the ground this season, and Seattle has two very capable running backs. The Cardinals' coverage scheme does not set up favorably for DK Metcalf based on his season-long usage trends. Arizona is coming off a huge win in Philadelphia where they imposed their will with their running game. Seattle's Week 17 loss to the Steelers was in large part due to the fact that they were completely unable to stop the run. Arizona has committed to Kyler Murray as their franchise quarterback for 2024. How Seattle will try to win The Seahawks had their sights set on the postseason heading into Week 17, but their defense was shredded and their offense was unable to keep pace with Mason Rudolph and the Steelers in a 30-23 loss. Now Seattle will need to take care of business against a feisty Cardinals team and hope for some help if they are to make the playoffs. 
Two of the three NFC wildcard spots have been clinched with the last slot currently belonging to the Packers. Seattle's path to the postseason requires a victory along with a Packers loss to the Bears, at which point the Seahawks would likely be headed to Dallas for the wildcard game in a rematch of a wild shootout these two teams had a few weeks ago. The Seahawks struggled against the Steelers in large part due to their defense being unable to get off the field, which allowed Pittsburgh to control the clock and win the time of possession and field position battles. Pittsburgh ran 71 offensive plays compared to only 49 for the Seahawks. Likewise, Seattle failed to finish off their drives as they settled for three second-half field goals as they watched Pittsburgh pull away. The Seattle offense was actually extremely efficient, averaging 7.5 yards per play, but they had three drives stall out when they needed to punch them in, and that was the difference in the game. As far as play calling goes, Seattle called 37 passing plays, pass attempts, sacks, and Geno Smith scrambles, compared to only 12 running plays. That pass rate of 75.5% is extremely high when you consider the fact that this game was within one score for the entirety of the game until the last four minutes of the fourth quarter. For this week, we should expect Seattle to lean more heavily on the run and try to control the ball better than they did in Week 17 as they face a Cardinals defense that grades out poorly against both the run and the pass, but has been gashed on the ground to a great extent all season long. The Cardinals play a more conservative style of defense with a low blitz rate and a high percentage of zone coverage that primarily features two high safety looks. These looks naturally encourage opponents to run the ball at a higher rate, and Arizona faces the second highest opponent run rate in the NFL this season. When you combine the fact that the Seahawks will be encouraged to run at an increased rate this week and should have a lot of success doing so, you can quickly see a scenario where this team runs the ball on half of their offensive plays or more while bleeding the clock and playing things close to the vest. When they do throw the ball, they are unlikely to force the ball down the field and will be far more likely to take the easy underneath throws, which could make Tyler Lockett and Jackson Smith and Jigba more featured parts of the passing game a week after each of them caught only one pass. All things considered, the Seahawks are likely to serve up a Pete Carroll special this week and win the game by slowing things down and pounding their opponent into submission. How Arizona will try to win Don't look now, but the Cardinals are on track to be a very scary team in 2024. Following their Week 17 upset win in Philadelphia, this is not the team that anyone would want to be facing with their playoff fate on the line. Since Kyler Murray's return, Arizona has a 3-4 record with wins over the Eagles, Falcons, and Steelers, all teams who are currently still alive for the playoffs. Arizona currently owns what would be the number 4 and number 17 picks in the NFL draft and has a total of 5 picks in the top 100, along with a great deal of cap space and a full year in their new system. Right now, we are focused on the Cardinals for Week 18, but those are all interesting tidbits to keep in mind for 2024 as Arizona is a team that will likely make a lot more noise next year than they did as a bottom feeder for most of this year. As for Week 18, most of the NFL is caught up in playoff scenarios and much of the industry is trying to figure out motivation for various teams and which teams will be resting players, playing for the future, etc. It isn't that hard to figure out for Arizona, as this is a team that is peaking late in the year and would undoubtedly like to end the season on a high note by knocking a division rival out of the playoffs. There should be no doubts about Arizona entering this game at full steam ahead. The Cardinals' recipe for beating the Eagles last week was one that they will likely try to emulate in Week 18 against Seattle, pound them on the ground, and leverage that rushing success with Kyler Murray's dynamic abilities to put points on the board. James Conner put on a show in Week 17 against an Eagles run defense that has been struggling in recent weeks. 
This week, they face the Seahawks, who gave up 202 rushing yards to the Steelers last week. On the season, Arizona ranks 31st in the NFL in pass rate over expectation. This week should be no different as they are likely to hammer Seattle on the ground until they are able to consistently stop it. When Arizona does throw, we can expect breakout tight end Trey McBride to be extremely busy against Seattle's zone-heavy coverage schemes. The Seattle defense is built in a way that tries to limit downfield passing and funnels looks to the short and intermediate areas of the field where they then try to rally to the ball and rely on sound tackling to limit yards after the catch. This concept should be advantageous for McBride and the diminutive Cardinals wide receivers, who along with the running backs, Connor and Michael Carter, are likely to be heavily featured on short throws from Murray. Arizona seems to have found a solid recipe last week and will run it back with a smash-mouth approach that fits well in this week's matchup. Likeliest Game Flow This game has all the ingredients to be highly competitive. Both offenses should be able to move the ball as they should have success on the ground, which will leave them in advantageous and manageable situations on third down. Ultimately, the level of scoring in this game will likely depend on how well these teams are able to execute in the red zone and if they are able to turn drives into touchdowns. These teams have had a combined four turnovers in the last three weeks and have only caused two turnovers each from their opponents during that stretch. That is not surprising considering the conservative nature of both defensive schemes and the lack of elite talent on either defense. With that in mind, and the run-heavy game plans likely from both offenses, the chances of either team having multiple early turnovers to turn the game into chaos or a shootout seems very unlikely. We have talked at length this season about how Seattle's general mindset is to play close games into the fourth quarter and then hope to win them late. This matchup is one that should allow them to score enough points to stay close, while also being tough enough on their defense to where they are unlikely to just dominate and build a big lead. As such, we are likely in store for a competitive game that will be within one score heading to the fourth quarter and will play to something near the implied team totals. It may also have limited overall play volume as both teams pound the ball on the ground and keep the game clock moving. As discussed earlier, both offenses are in great spots this week and ultimately the game's final scoring output and the winning team in this game are highly likely to come down to who executes at the highest level in the red zone. The Bears at the Packers. Kickoff Sunday, January 7th at 425 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Bears will look to finish their season strong and play spoiler this week. Chicago has won five of its last seven games, and both losses during that stretch were games in which the Bears blew two-score leads in the fourth quarter. Questions surround the future of Justin Fields with the team, and this week is his last chance to make his case to stay in Chicago. It is simple for the Packers this week. Win, and you're in. They would be either the number six or number seven seed. Aaron Jones will likely be a focal point of the offense in a must-win game with A.J. Dillon battling multiple injuries. The Packers' wide receivers are battling injuries, and we will want to keep an eye on their statuses. How Chicago will try to win. The Bears have actually been wildly successful during the second half of the season, although most people have probably not noticed just how good they have been. The Bears have won five of their last seven games. The two losses during that stretch were to the Browns and Lions, two teams that currently have 11 wins each. The Bears led the Browns 17-7 through three quarters and led the Lions 26-14 with four minutes remaining in the game. Chicago has a three-pronged offensive attack at this point in the season. 
Those three weapons are Fields, DJ Moore, and their running backs. Obviously, the Bears throw the ball to more than just Moore, but the other players in their offense have their opportunities set up by the attention Moore draws, the use of play action in their running game, and the time that Fields buys them with his legs. Those ancillary pieces of the Bears' offense certainly have a place in the grand scheme of things, but everything they do is based on establishing the running game, threatening defenses with the dynamic abilities of fields, and finding creative ways to get more of the ball. Chicago ranks 28th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, while also ranking 27th in tempo. Summarizing that, they play slow and run the ball a lot, which leads to fewer overall plays in their games and works to mute play volume and offensive production for opponents. The Bears' defense has been superb over the latter half of the year, and while they have found some explosive plays from their offense, they haven't had the need to force it. The Packers sit back in a lot of zone coverage and have been gashed on the ground again this year, making it likely that the Bears can move the ball adequately without stretching themselves too much. Chicago's opponents have averaged only 15.2 points per game over the past five weeks, and they are likely to once again lean on fields and their running game while trying to win the field position battle while betting that an offensive output of 20 points will be enough to steal a victory. How Green Bay Will Try to Win The Packers are currently the number seven seed in the NFC, and their goal this week is very simple. Win, and you're in. While the exact seed is somewhat up in the air, they could be the number six seed if the Rams lose, or the number seven seed if the Rams win, the reality is that if the Packers can get into the playoffs in Jordan Love's first year as their starting quarterback, it would be enormous for the franchise. Green Bay was left for dead by many analysts after a 3-6 and six start, but the Packers have rattled off wins in five of their last seven games and appear to be hitting their stride offensively at just the right time. After scoring more than 20 points only twice in their first nine games, the Packers have scored at least 20 points in seven straight games, while averaging 26.7 points during that stretch. For comparison's sake, there are only six teams in the NFL averaging more than 26.7 points per game this season. While the Packers' offense is rolling, they face off this week against a Bears defense that has been equally hot. Chicago has not allowed an opponent to break the 20-point barrier since November 5th. The Bears' defense has been elite against the run all year, ranking 4th in run defense DVOA and yards per carry allowed, and their secondary and pass rush have improved dramatically during their recent stretch. The Green Bay offense has put a lot of focus recently on Jones and rookie wide receiver Jaden Reed. The statuses of Reed and second-year wide receiver Christian Watson will be important to monitor leading into Sunday, as their availability will be critical to Green Bay moving the ball. The Packers' defense has been a huge problem this season, as they made Baker Mayfield look like Joe Montana and made Tommy DeVito look like Joe Namath, while also somehow finding a way to surrender 30 points to the Panthers' inept offense in Week 16. The reality is that Green Bay is going to need to enter this game pushing for points, as it can't rely on their defense to hold fields, more, and company down all game. This Bears defense is not a unit you want to be backed into a corner against right now, so the Packers may have to up their aggressiveness early in the game to build a lead and take control of the game script. Likeliest Game Flow This game sets up to be a classic battle, as two teams with an epic history who are playing well will run into each other. 
While the Packers have a lot on the line in terms of a playoff berth, the Bears are in a position to put a feather in their cap of a 2023 season that seemed lost at one point and add to the growing excitement for the future of their franchise. Honestly, my lean in this game is towards the Bears, who have far less pressure on them and who have a defense that is playing at a far higher level. The Packers' offense has been up and down this season, but is very young and has struggled with teams that generate a lot of pressure at times. The Bears have played everyone so well during their second half of the year that it feels highly probable that they make a game of it, and the athleticism of fields and higher level of play from their defense feels like it gives them the upper hand. Both teams play at a relatively slow pace, and the Bears run based offense, along with a Packers team that may play more conservatively with their season on the line, seems to point to a moderate outlook to this game. The likeliest catalyst for an elevated scoring environment would be if the Bears make some big plays and build an early lead that pushes Green Bay to open things up and let Love try to go win it against a very good opposing defense. The Chiefs at the Chargers kick off Sunday, December 7th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 35.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Chiefs are locked in as the number three seed in the AFC and essentially have nothing to play for. Patrick Mahomes has already been ruled out for this game and Blaine Gabbert will draw the start. Isaiah Pacheco, Rashid Rice, and Travis Kelsey seem highly unlikely to play as well, as they are nursing injuries and key pieces to the offense. Easton Stick will make his fourth consecutive start for the Chargers and hopes to get his first win as a starting quarterback. The Chiefs will also likely sit several key defensive players, which gives Chargers offensive pieces easier paths to good statistical games. How Kansas City will try to win the Chiefs have the number three seed in the AFC wrapped up and are going to be resting Mahomes in this game. They also seem likely to give the week off to key offensive skill players Kelsey, Pacheco, and Rice, with an eye towards the playoffs. The Chiefs' offense is generally a relatively spread-out scheme, and they will likely be rotating a lot of players on and off the field at their skill positions. Gabbard is in line to start, and while logic would dictate that they will call a very different game for him than they did for Mahomes, the reality is that Mahomes has been very conservative this season due to the team's overall offensive issues, and things may not change too much. The Chiefs have been near the top of the league in pass rate over expectation for the last several years, and that has continued this year. Meanwhile, former offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy has taken over the same position with the Commanders this season, and also had an extremely high PROE despite far less talent at the quarterback position and the skill positions. This signals that the Chiefs' offensive approach is likely to maintain a pass-centric approach that has a great deal of motion and misdirection, while passes are focused on the short to intermediate areas of the field. The Chargers' defense has been anything but a stalwart for most of this season, and it wouldn't be shocking for a good offensive coach, Andy Reid, to be able to create yards and points against them this week. The overall nature of the Chiefs' offense makes it unlikely that they would turn into a run-centric unit in this spot, but there is a bit more uncertainty about how they will play than when Mahomes is under center. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win this week, the Chargers will be playing their fourth game with what amounts to their second-string offense. Star wide receiver Mike Williams has been out since early in the season with a torn ACL, and Justin Herbert and Keenan Allen have been out for nearly a month now. 
Los Angeles fired its head coach and will likely have an entirely new staff, or close to it, for the 2024 season. Stick has taken over for the Chargers since Herbert went down with an injury, and while he hasn't been a complete disaster, he is not a talent elevator, and what he has around him is not a naturally talented unit to begin with. The result of this has been a muted offensive outlook for a team that we have come to know as dynamic and potentially explosive on a week-to-week basis over the last couple of years. The Chargers rank ninth in the NFL in PROE for the season and have the fastest raw tempo, seconds per snap, in the league, which on the surface would make you think of them as a pass-centric and fast-moving unit. The reality, however, is that they were in the top five of PROE for much of the season and have taken a big step backwards in that department in the last three weeks. Likewise, their tempo has not been the same with Stick under center during close games as it was with Herbert calling the shots. The Chiefs are likely to rest several key defensive players, including superstar defensive tackle Chris Jones and all-pro cornerback Legereus Sneed, which alters and improves the outlook for Los Angeles in this game. The Chiefs' scheme plays manic coverage at close to the highest rate in the NFL, and the Chargers do not have great receivers at creating separation right now. While things should get easier with a slower pass rush and removing an elite cover corner, it is unlikely that the Chargers will want to, or be able to, air it out in this spot. The Chiefs' defensive scheme is naturally more attackable on the ground, and Los Angeles will likely continue its relatively conservative play-calling approach of recent weeks in this spot. The Chargers have PFF's 31st graded run-blocking offensive line, so it's not like they are a lock to move the ball well on the ground. But we can expect their game plan to be focused on their running backs, slot receivers, and tight ends in the early going with a relatively methodical approach by Chargers standards. Likeliest Game Flow This game is roughly the equivalent of a preseason game which means that while the implied team totals and overall low-scoring expectations for this spot make sense, there is also an extremely wide range of outcomes. While it seems unlikely that a Chiefs offense that has struggled all season will come out of nowhere for a big offensive performance with all of their key players sitting out, they are facing a Chargers defense that has been poor all season and which they diced up in the first matchup. Likewise, the Chiefs' defense has been terrific this season, and the Chargers are severely lacking talent and explosiveness right now. But if the Chiefs pull their main defensive talents away and perhaps run a more vanilla scheme, you can see paths to Los Angeles putting up more points. All that being said, the likeliest game flow is a relatively ugly game that looks a little disjointed for both offenses with the Chiefs trying to get out of here in one piece and the Chargers playing out the string on a lost season. Week 18 in the NFL is a weird place, however, and any number of scenarios would not be shocking, including a very good offensive coach for the Chiefs scheming three or four touchdowns against a poor defense, or a undermanned but now experienced Chargers offense. It is relevant that they've been playing with this shorthanded personnel for a couple of weeks now finding elevated success against a defense that is trying to keep everyone in one piece and looking a week ahead. It will likely be ugly, but what if it's not? Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Broncos at the Raiders kick off Sunday, January 7th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 37. Game Overview by Mike Johnson 
Jarrett Stidham will once again start at quarterback for the Broncos after beating the Chargers last week. Las Vegas has been eliminated from the playoffs, but should be laying it on the line for interim head coach Antonio Pierce as he makes his case for the full-time job. These teams met way back in Week 1, with the Raiders pulling out a 17-16 victory in a defensive battle. Jaleel McLaughlin started at running back for Denver last week and could be in line for extended run as Denver heads into the offseason. We will want to keep a close eye on the injury reports and inactives for these teams as the lookout could change dramatically for several players if certain key defenders are ruled out. How Denver will try to win The Broncos have a chance for a winning record in Sean Payton's first season if they can secure a victory in Las Vegas. While they have been eliminated from the playoffs and benched Russell Wilson, this is still a team that is going to put their best foot forward in Week 18. Jarrett Stidham had a fine performance in last week's low-scoring win over the Chargers and will have another week to audition for his spot with the Broncos in 2024. Denver will be cash-strapped by the Russell Wilson contract, regardless of how they handle it this offseason, and will pick in the middle of the first round, which will make it hard for them to get one of the more surefire quarterback prospects from this year's class. Peyton has been very complimentary of Stidham since he arrived in Denver, and a solid week to end the season could give him a fighter's chance of gaining Denver's trust for next year. The Broncos rank 25th in pass rate over expectation and 28th in raw pace of play. They are a relatively run-oriented offense that does not push the pace or force things downfield. Stidham did connect on a couple of downfield throws and had a couple of other near-misses on deeper throws, but for the most part, the Broncos' passing game focused on the short and intermediate areas of the field while taking care of the ball. Ball security and the turnover battle have been critical for Denver this season, as they have committed only four turnovers combined during their eight victories this season. On the other hand, Denver has committed 17 turnovers in their eight losses. This dichotomy shows just how important ball control is to the Broncos, and we should expect their season-long tendencies to hold in this week's matchup against a fiery and upstart Raiders defense. The Raiders blitz at the fourth lowest rate, but are still able to generate pressure against teams that struggle in pass protection. Denver ranks fifth in PFF pass-blocking grades and should be able to hold up and keep Stidham in a clean pocket for most of the game. Denver may take some calculated downfield shots as the game wears on, but we should expect a heavy dose of the running backs and some quick-hitting timing routes from the Broncos' passing game early in this one. How Las Vegas will try to win The Raiders fought valiantly but were eliminated from the playoffs in last week's loss to the Colts. The Raiders' offense was incredibly concentrated in Week 17. The Raiders ran 70 offensive plays that did not end as a sack or Aiden O'Connell run. On those 70 plays, Devontae Adams and Zamir White combined for an incredible 47 of the opportunities, carries plus targets. Jacoby Myers added 10 targets of his own, resulting in an 81.4% usage rate between these three players. This is near the levels we saw from this unit early in the season with Josh Jacobs in the lead back role, and if we can get something similar this week, there could be some opportunity for a great fantasy score from at least one of them again. The Broncos are one of the worst run defenses in the NFL by almost any metric you can find, and opposing running backs continue to put up solid performances against them. The Raiders have been a team that tries to control games through their running game and defense since their mid-season coaching change, so this week's matchup seems ripe for their preferred offensive approach. The Broncos have a formidable secondary, 
but Adams has had big games against them before and is good enough to make plays in almost any matchup. That being said, the Raiders are focused on ball control and have not been overly trusting of rookie quarterback Aiden O'Connell unless forced to be in recent weeks. With that in mind, they are unlikely to force the ball to Adams this week if he draws shadow coverage from star cornerback Patrick Sertain. The Raiders play at the 10th slowest pace in the NFL, and their focus on the running game should make their drives a bit long and drawn out. This game profiles more like their grinded-out win over the Chiefs on Christmas than it does like their high-volume loss to the Colts in Week 17. Those low-scoring games are how the Raiders want to play at this point in the season, and they are in a good position to execute their preferred game plan against the Broncos. Likeliest Game Flow We discussed earlier how the Broncos have committed only four turnovers in their eight losses this season. It is also of note that they have not committed more than one in any game that they won. The Raiders have a similar focus at this point in the season, and the result is that both teams are likely to enter this game with a conservative offensive approach until, unless, they are pulled out of it. Likewise, the methodical nature of both offenses, along with the play-calling tendencies, should keep things moving and create a situation where we will likely need a spark of some sort to ignite this game. The first time these teams played was way back in Week 1, when the Raiders narrowly won a 17-16 game in Denver. A similar game script seems likely here, as two competitive and well-coached teams are going to play close to the vest and should have enough offensive success to move the ball, but not enough to put up a massive number on the scoreboard. The Raiders are the team more likely to control the game as the Broncos' porous run defense gives them the easiest path to moving the ball, while Denver's offense struggled against a poor Chargers defense a week ago. The Eagles at the Giants. Kickoff Sunday, January 7th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 42. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. The Eagles are currently the number five seed in the NFC and would need to win and have the Cowboys lose to have a chance at changing that. The Giants looked good in Tyrod Taylor's return to the starting quarterback position, nearly defeating the Rams in Week 17. Saquon Barkley's uncertain status with the Giants in 2024 leaves some questions around his workload for the final week of the year. Eagles head coach Nick Sirianni has mentioned the possibility of resting players this week prior to the playoffs, so you will want to make sure you stay up to date with any news around that. How Philadelphia will try to win The Eagles are in a unique position in Week 18 that adds uncertainty to how they will approach this game and how that approach may change in the middle of things. After an upset loss to the Cardinals in Week 17, the Eagles are now in line for the number 5 seed in the NFC and a road playoff game just a week from now against whoever emerges as the NFC South champion. The Eagles will either be the number 2 seed or the number 5 seed, with their only path to number 2 being through a win and a Cowboys loss. The Cowboys are facing a downtrodden Commanders team who they beat by 5 touchdowns just a few weeks ago and are two-touchdown favorites against. Meanwhile, Sirianni hinted earlier this week at the possibility of resting key players heading into the playoffs. While we don't have any specifics on it at this point, the mere fact that this has already been discussed means that we must acknowledge the uncertainty around this spot. The reality of this situation is that the Eagles have to at least enter Week 18 with the intention of trying to get the number 2 seed, as it is just too valuable to let slip away in the event Dallas slips up. That being said, if the Cowboys, who play simultaneously to the Eagles, jump out to a big early lead, 
it wouldn't be surprising for Philly to pull the plug early on their key players and simply look towards next week and try to get out of there in one piece. As for how Philadelphia will try to win, its offense really hasn't been the problem recently. They rank in the top seven in the NFL in DVOA via both their pass and the run. Their elite offensive line creates running lanes for their backs, led by DeAndre Swift, and Jalen Hurts makes plays with his legs on designed runs and scrambles. The passing game has not been exceptionally explosive of late, but it still gets the job done. A.J. Brown set an NFL record with six straight games of 125 or more receiving yards earlier this season, but he has failed to reach that mark in eight games since, and failed to score a touchdown in his last five games, and has only two games where he has more than 80 receiving yards during that stretch. Devonta Smith is the Eagles' clear number two option in the passing game but he has yet to practice this week and seems unlikely to play or to have limited effectiveness if he does play. Tight end Dallas Goddard had two consecutive quality games, and if Smith does indeed miss this game, then Goddard will likely become a focal point of the offense. Finally, Julio Jones broke out for a two-touchdown game last week, and given his talent and skill set, he should at least draw some attention going forward after proving he still has something left in the tank. The Eagles will enter this game trying to win, and will take their usual approach to doing so with long drives. New York's defense is unlikely to shut down the Eagles' running game, and just two weeks ago, these teams faced off with Philadelphia racking up five yards per carry en route to 170-plus rushing yards. The Eagles are so good in short yardage, thanks Tush Push, that they have become far more conservative the last few weeks offensively. Basically, the idea that they can simply get eight or nine yards over the course of three plays and be nearly guaranteed a first down has enabled them to take the easy way out and remove the need to push the ball downfield or take chances. Their defense's struggles have almost certainly contributed to this as well, as they can't take as many chances with their possessions when their defense is giving up more yards and points. Eagles' drives are full of 10 to 15 play drives, and the Philadelphia offense has been good, but not elite at finishing off drives with touchdowns this year, ranking 11th in red zone touchdown percentage in 2023 after finishing third in the same category in 2022. The Eagles' approach here should be pretty straightforward, with a methodical offensive attack that leans heavily on the run and has a relatively condensed target tree that will likely keep Brown and Goddard very busy. The Eagles should have offensive success and move the ball, but their playing style will likely limit overall first-half possessions, and the potential of a Dallas blowout adds some risk to what Eagles team we will see in the second half. How New York will try to win The Giants are coming off a game that they probably should have won over a playoff-bound Rams team, if not for a botched two-point conversion. After a few weeks of Tommy DeVito mania, the Giants went back to Taylor at quarterback, and he had a very productive week by scoring 25 points and moving the ball well with explosive plays to boot. Taylor threw for over 300 passing yards and ran for 40 yards on six carries as well last week, as his arm strength and mobility opened up the Giants' offense a bit. In a week full of motivation questions around most of the league, the Giants enter this week in line for the fifth overall pick in the NFL draft. While a win this week could theoretically hurt their draft position, this is a team with a competitive head coach from the Bill Belichick coaching tree who fought to the final play just a week ago. They are going to leave it all on the line here. 
This week, the Giants face an Eagles defense that gave up a whopping 449 yards of offense to the Cardinals in Week 17, and that has been struggling for answers in the second half of the season. The Eagles secondary has struggled for most of the season, and several times during the first half of the season, they gave up big games to teams through the air. However, last week, it was their run defense that really broke down, as they allowed the Cardinals' backfield of James Conner, Kyler Murray, and Michael Carter to run roughshod over them. The Giants actually made the switch back to Taylor in the second half of their meeting with Philadelphia just two weeks ago. Taylor connected on a long touchdown pass and then nearly led a game-tying drive at the end of the fourth quarter. Expect the Giants to lean heavily on Barkley while also leveraging the legs of Taylor to move the ball and pick up first downs. Meanwhile, they will almost certainly take some calculated downfield shots against a struggling Eagles secondary that may not have a lot of schematic help as their coaching staff tries to fix a broken run defense. Likeliest Game Flow There are a ton of directions this game could go. Generally speaking, the way this Eagles team is built right now leads to long, clock-consuming drives for their offense, while allowing opponents' defenses to also move the ball, sustain drives, and milk the clock. We also must consider the fact that the Giants have a very strong offensive coaching staff, and they performed well against the Rams last week and had success against this Eagles team just two weeks ago with Taylor under center. This creates a situation where there is likely to be offensive success on both sides of the ball in the first half, but there may only be three or four offensive possessions for each team. Both of these defenses actually rank in the bottom 10 of the NFL in opponent red zone touchdown percentage, meaning that they have allowed their opponents to turn their drives into touchdowns at a very high rate this season. With that in mind, a relatively high-scoring first half may be in store but then it's anyone's guess what will happen after that due to the moving parts in this game and the impact the Dallas game will have on the outlook here. If both teams play to the end, we could be in store for a competitive and very exciting game, as the Eagles' offense is good enough to put up a big number against a mediocre to poor defense, and the Eagles' defense is opening the gates for everybody right now. The Rams at the 49ers Kickoff Sunday, January 7th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 41. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Rams have clinched a playoff spot and are locked in as either the number 6 or number 7 seed. They will be sitting all of their key skill players in this one except for Pukunakua, who is chasing the all-time records for receptions and receiving yardage for a rookie wide receiver. The 49ers have clinched the number one overall seed in the NFC and will be resting most of their key players this week as well. That means this will be a matchup of backup quarterbacks who are former high draft picks, Carson Wentz and Sam Darnold. While both teams have clearly placed a priority on resting their key players this week, the Rams still have some incentive to find a way to win and optimize their playoff situation. These teams are familiar with each other, and both offensive coordinators should be comfortable with creating game plans to attack their opponents' respective weaknesses. How Los Angeles will try to win The Rams have clinched a playoff berth and, in theory, have very little to play for. While they are currently the number six seed and could lock in that spot, a lot of movement could happen in the spots above them that would alter who they are playing anyway. The Lions are currently the number three seed and would match up with the Rams if the playoffs started today which would be an interesting narrative matchup with Stafford returning to Detroit for their first home playoff game in 30 years. 
The reality is that the Rams can't lock in a matchup, however, and at this point in the season, all three of the Lions, Cowboys, and Eagles are in a similar tier of currently better than everyone except the 49ers, but still beatable. With all that being said, the Rams have already decided to rest most of their key players this week, with Matthew Stafford, Kyron Williams, Cooper Cup, and Aaron Donald being ruled out by Thursday, and more likely to come over the weekend. The decision to sit Stafford means that Carson Wentz will get another shot as a starting NFL quarterback. Wentz went unsigned all offseason before finally joining the Rams in November. After a promising start to his career and a near-MVP-level performance one season, Wentz took a nosedive the last few years with stints in Philadelphia, Indianapolis, and Washington that ended unceremoniously. The Rams' offense is based around three pillars, its running game, formations, and pre-snap motions. They use the motions and formations to stress defenses before the snap, and have a solid run game scheme that forces defenses to honor their ability to move the ball on the ground when things are working correctly. Wentz is a relatively mobile and athletic quarterback who can make plays with his legs, but his shortcomings have been largely tied to faulty decision-making and an inability to progress through reads efficiently. As such, this profiles as a game that the Rams will likely try to be even more run-centric than usual and will try to make sure their passing game concepts have easy first and second reads, while giving Wentz the ability to scramble if nothing is there early. The 49ers' resting key defenders will be extremely helpful to the Rams' offense as they blitz at the third lowest rate in the league and may struggle to get pressure on Wentz. As mentioned earlier, Stafford, Cup, and Williams have been ruled out, but rookie sensation Pukunakua appears set to play. He is four receptions and 29 yards away from the single-season NFL records in those respective categories, and the Rams intend to play him until he reaches those marks before being smart with him, which is code for pulling him from the game. Young backs Ronnie Rivers and Zach Evans may get extended run for the Rams in this pseudo-preseason game, while the top receiving weapons are likely to be Demarcus Robinson, Tutu Atwell, and rookie tight end Davis Allen. All three of those players have had flashes this season, and the backs have not shown great abilities as receivers, meaning that we could end up with a relatively condensed passing game if those three are the focuses of those one and two read progressions for Wentz. All things considered, the Rams will be trying to win this game, but are unlikely to take big risks to player health to do it. They will want to run a version of their offense similar to what they normally run, as they will still have some regular players on the field and have a playoff game next week but they may play with a more methodical tempo and or have more run-centric play-calling tendencies. How San Francisco Will Try to Win The 49ers have been a relatively predictable team for the duration of the 2023 season, so as we head into 2024, it is only fitting that they are benching everyone and we have very little idea of how they will play. San Francisco is locked in for the number one seed in the NFC and will have next week off. Brock Purdy and Christian McCaffrey have already been ruled out, and it would be shocking at this point if Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, George Kittle, and all-pro tackle Trent Williams were to play. There's a chance some or all of those players suit up and are active, but it would be shocking to see any of them in the game beyond the first drive or two. The 49ers offense has an elite scheme designed by head coach Kyle Shanahan, and they will operate with their usual concepts, as they always do. The issue is that their scheme is designed so well because of how it uses the strengths of their skill players, who are elite after the catch and with the ball in their hands. 
The transition to backups executing the offense reduces the chances of them playing at a high level, but the misdirection, motions, and other concepts that stress defenses remain and could certainly give this Rams team fits. Similar to the Rams scheme, the 49ers offense is based around their running game and builds from there. They will likely give a decent amount of run to young backs Jordan Mason and Tyrion David Price. One thing to keep in mind is that the 49ers are always focused on developing talent, and their Super Bowl hopes last year were derailed because of injuries. I would think their top priorities this week would be putting Sam Darnold in advantageous positions where he can have a good outing and build confidence, while also making sure to keep him healthy as they will need him available should Brock Purdy suffer an injury at any point. Purdy has been dealing with a shoulder stinger recently, and suffered an elbow injury in last year's playoffs. So having Darnold sharp and healthy is an important insurance policy for this team that has been head and shoulders above the rest of the NFC. The Rams' defense has not been great this year, but has found a way to get the job done against most of their lesser opponents. They are not an overly aggressive unit in terms of blitzing and play a high rate of zone coverage. Meanwhile, removing Aaron Donald and some other key defenders from the field should make running the ball a much easier task. This means that the 49ers should be able to use their running game as the focal point of their offense and give Darnold easy throws on slants, digs, and other in-breaking routes against the Rams' zone scheme. They should also be able to utilize play action effectively due to the relatively muted expected pass rush and the focus their running game will draw from the defense. Finally, the 49ers play with one of the slower tempos in the league, and we can expect much of the same this week. They have arguably the top skill position core in the league with their starters, and play at the slowest pace in the league with them, so it's hard to see a scenario where they decide to ramp up the tempo with their backups. Likeliest Game Flow Both teams have offenses built around their running games, and both teams are likely to play at a slower pace. This means that the clock should be moving quickly throughout the game, and we could be looking at a game with a very low play volume. That being said, the defenses are also likely to be resting players and potentially calling things in a conservative, vanilla manner in what amounts to a meaningless game, which could make it more viable that these offenses can break off some big plays and move the ball effectively. Both of these teams have head coaches that are offensive-minded play callers, and while they may be resting their players this week, they are likely to want to keep themselves sharp and call a good game. Considering how well these schemes are designed and the elite play callers for each team, there is likely a greater chance of a high-scoring game here than the average observer will expect. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Cowboys at the Commanders kick off Sunday, January 7th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 47. Due to time constraints, the audio for this write-up could not be included this week. Please find the full write-up on the NFL Edge at OneWeekSeason.com.